Hey, I'm here with John, and today we're going to discuss the so, so-called problem of evil, but I think we're going to actually take it apart and, and suggest that, in fact, even uh, positing it this way is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, let, me, uh, let me introduce a little bit that, you know, I think our tendency is especially, in, and maybe it is a byproduct of partly of the modern period of doing theodicies, that one of the big problems, uh, supposedly, is that, uh, you know, how, does, how do we justify the existence of God in face of overwhelming evil? There, you know, David Bentley Hart has written mm-hmm. a couple of books on this. It's a very popular theme. And so there is a... There N.T. Wright as well. N.T. N. Wright yeah. has written a More popular level. And uh, maybe at just an immediate existential level, I think the impetus, that the same impetus that is there in uh, doing theodicies is there in our own encounter with evil, that when somebody does something mean or evil to us, our, what we, we just run it through our mind again and again, trying to figure it out. But maybe in the existential situation, we recognize that the compulsive repetition of this thing over and over, as if we could figure it out, is itself part of the the residue of evil. That is, that this thing is incomprehensible, and that's the, the very nature of it. But maybe I've already taken us further... Well, I think that's just the giant letdown of this conversation is that the, at the end, evil won't be explained. We will end up having to say that. Uh, but evil is a third, and that's actually the point, and we'll have to get there and why that's the point. But uh, uh, it's not a bad way to introduce the... So let's, uh, let's, let's begin then. First of all, in a period in which evil apparently was not a problem, and then let's describe why it became a problem, and then let's see if we can uh, uh, extract ourselves then from uh, the the modern understanding. So let's go back and say, apparently there was a period in the church, in fact, most of Mm -hmm. the history of of Christianity, in which evil is not a problem. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean we're speaking about moral evil. Um, I think I don't think natural evil is actually a problem either, but that's because people thought differently about the world. But that's true. Uh, so Thomas Aquinas, who is uh, one of the last major thinkers of sort of the high Middle Ages, before you get into the late Middle Ages and things, begin to start shifting towards what usually is referred to as modernity will briefly address the problem of evil. And he addresses this while talking about who God is. And at this point in the Summa, talking about who God is in relation to God's self. So he he is speaking theologically. This isn't a philosophical discussion necessarily. And it also takes account of sin. And so following some more recent work on Thomas Aquinas, both by uh, Bernard Lonergan, who is a Jesuit uh, scholar, and then... Also, Herbert McCabe, who was a Dominican scholar, both 20th century theologians. Uh, Neither of them are with us in the flesh anyway. But Lonergan, as he brings up a bit of commentary on the Summa, he's addressing question 19, 
where Thomas is talking about the will of God. Question 19, uh, article 9, gets into the fact of whether God wills evil. And Thomas realizes, well, you wouldn't want to say that God wills evil, because then you would have a perverse God, and uh, he would be less than what we should be worshipping as God, or the object of our worship. But to say that God does not will evil is problematic because evil exists, or would be problematic if you wanted to approach it that way. But for Thomas, that's not even a consideration that you would address uh, the issue as if there was this problem of commensurability between the existence of God and the existence of evil. And Lonergan simply introduces the topic as one has only to read St. Thomas to realize that this question did not worry him a great deal, and our present purpose is to discover the root of the strange insouciance, for the problem has worried others. And so the, the what he's referring to is Thomas Aquinas says that God does not will evil, neither does God will that evil does not exist. God wills to permit evil, and that that is a good. And then Thomas moves on. However, other thinkers of the late Middle Ages and modern period will readdress this, thinking that evil is perhaps a problem, and it's a problem for who God is. So how can we vindicate God? And, and they get into a system in which they're imagining that an all-powerful God, who is both good, could not possibly be commensurable with a world that has evil in existence. But there's where the turn has already been made. So Thomas would not have conceived God in terms of uh, power as a, a key attribute, although God is powerful. Thomas was thinking about God more as a God of divine wisdom and love. And so I think that what Thomas is doing, and Lonergan's arguing this, is that for Aquinas, the good that arises, the good that is the fact, rather, it's not a, it's not a cause and effect relationship. Uh, I can't help my own nominalist <laughs> predispositions. Uh, the good that is the fact that God permits to will evil is human free will in the face of God's act of grace working upon us. So Thomas doesn't think of evil as something to be defined or described, and I think we'll get into that a little bit of why and, that is. And maybe let's uh, let's pause here a minute. And of course, when we're talking about the the problem of evil is in no way to undermine the notion. Oh, evil's a problem. Yes, yeah, it's a is <laughs> a fact of existence. Evil is a problem. And so the the issue though is that does this fall back upon uh, God? And what you're describing in Thomas is uh, that uh, you have God removed from the possibility of. Uh, in involving himself in evil, as we would define it, in you know the the you know the part uh, underlying all of this, we're not really using the term in a Hebraic sense hmm. that that it has a larger meaning, which is telling. Yeah, well, let me run that down. Why well, the, uh, you know, I, and you would bring up Hebrew. I can't think of a Hebrew word for evil off the top of my head, but it, it's not. Evil is the way we conceive it. So the Hebrew word for evil doesn't imply any type of ontological existence. So the, it, it, I'm getting us off track here, but in the Hebrew Bible, you, know, you actually have God doing evil. Yeah. yeah, if you were going to translate it that way. If, and of course, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but so that what we are describing is a particular understanding of 
of the predicament. And so uh, the idea of evil, of course, is that uh, it's not that in any way by uh, getting, you know, in, uh, freeing the responsibility of God that anyway we've explained it or justified it or come to some comprehension of it that what we're dealing with is a, a very small issue at this point. Yeah. And that is that, well, in and through human free will, we can at least point to that possibility uh uh, and that's what you're saying about Aquinas. So, uh, yeah, in other words, I mean, where does evil come from in the way Lonergan explains this? Using, uh, well, he really uses just Thomas Aquinas as a starting place for the discussion. But where evil comes from is from a misrelation between ourselves and God. And so God isn't really, in any real sense, the way, the way what we mean by relation, related to us. However, we are related to God. But whenever that relation becomes a misrelation, um, because of our uh, misdirected desire, you could call it illicit desire, uh, lust, covetousness. I mean, there's all sorts of words that you could use. Then you have the possibility for evil as a fact about our existence. And it is grounded in something. It's grounded in a relation, but it's not grounded in anything ontological. This, of course, takes us back to St. Augustine and his discussion of evil if i remember in in his picture of evil he you know it, clearly he's talking about a privation but even augustine when he goes back and talks about adam in the garden his his point is that this is absurd mm-hmm. or this is unexplainable that that this is beyond comprehension right. that adam would choose uh, the evil that he would choose the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I think Augustine's point is that once the choice has been made, he's introduced this into uh, the the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so this is uh, Augustine will define evil as a privation of the good. And maybe we should run that and, down. Yeah. So the way this would work is it's not. Uh, I mean, as humans, in some sense, just because of the fact we are related to God, we would want to choose the good. But because of our misrelation to God, because of, again, what X, Y, or illicit desire or covetousness or um, lust, what we would end up choosing as a lesser good. As far as humans are concerned, we don't always choose God. And I think that's obvious uh, for anybody that lives in the world. But what happens when we choose a lesser good is it's accompanied with a privation that is a privation of the goodness of God himself. So we would deprive ourselves of God's goodness. And Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 2 in a wonderful way when he's talking about those who are cut off from the kingdom of God. They are without God in the world. And that becomes the reality for those who, because of this misrelation, begin to do evil, begin to do sin. It doesn't lend an ontology to sin, but it does create a false reality, which is a reality without God in the world. Before we go down that path, let's back up a minute and talk about desire. This is where you're... Well, the the uh, the idea here of uh, you know there is a desire that you know every this is sort of C.S. Lewis's point that you know given that we have uh, desire for water, well that desire has been met. That that we have desire for food with hunger, that desire has been met, and then we can imagine that desire for God 
is one that implies the existence of God. And what you're describing then in this understanding of an illicit desire is that you would imagine that the, that food, sex, or one of the other desires can in some way fulfill the desire yes. for God. That would be one way. Which actually is the framework of illicit desire. Because then you're, you're never satiated. And uh, that, that it is a kind of uh, exponential desire. But I, is that, I guess that's one frame for understanding desire. But is that what you get then, is there in fact the possibility that of uh, a completely evil desire that is simply desiring mm-hmm. the evil? inherent so radical evil and run down for us a little bit uh a little uh emmanuel kant's positing of this and then how it has developed in mm-hmm. the modern frame or we can yeah. run it down. yeah so we'll have to connect this back to the middle age uh the view of the middle ages which is where this gets really interesting here in a moment but it is helpful to look at kant and it's shockingly helpful because kant of course is an enlightenment figure uh, perhaps the Enlightenment figure. And he's supposed to be optimistic about humanity and believe in progress and all of these things that we normally associate with the Enlightenment. But as he begins... Um, oh, I just lost the work. His title in my... <laughs> reason. Uh, he, uh, religion within the bounds of reason. Okay. As he begins religion within the bounds of reason, his whole first part is about the possibility of radical evil. And what he means by radical evil is that word radical comes from the uh, Latin root radix, which means evil at the core, in other words. Uh, and what you've got to applaud Kant a little bit for just being honest, for starting off this book with a premise that he's not going to ultimately entertain, and he doesn't develop it, but just being willing to look at reality and say, sometimes it seems like people are just really bad, and that they're they're at the core of themselves, they're bad, and they're seeking evil for evil, for the sake of evil. And uh, then he stops that, and he goes on about <laughs> his but business. I, think, I guess uh, you could, but that's an interesting positing of the, the and idea. I guess it is a part. It is a possibility within a Kantian framework of the of the categorical imperative that, of course, his idea of the grounding of morality or of, of human goodness is the idea that I would only will that that would be done which I would will to be done universally. So you would immediately think well Kant's already undermined his whole his whole system and the sadistic person or the masochistic person even actually is probably the better uh, you know well what if I'm okay with people hurting me uh, or yeah. with people hurting other people sadism. But I think for Kant, what is still there implicitly um, is he truly believes that all humans have this innate capacity for reason, and that's simply unreasonable. I mean, I think that's why he doesn't see the right. contradiction. I don't agree with him, so <laughs> I think that there, you know, that is a problem. And, and maybe we're at at some level. Uh, this is not simply a philosophical argument, but. Do we believe in the, in diabolical evil? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can talk about what that is. 
I don't think Kant did. No, that's what my point was. That yeah. I think he believes actually just by virtue of us being rational animals, being reasonable, that we're not capable of that kind of evil. And of course, uh, his uh, you have someone like the Marquis de Sade mm-hmm. who will uh, live out a categorical imperative by his very name, you know, we get sadism, and the sod's idea is that we should all pleasure ourselves to the fullest extent, uh, up to and including uh, murder or, you know, use of others. But And, of course, his idea is that uh, human beings are of, uh, uh, not a, it's not a human material reality is, is, you know, one day we're flesh and blood, the next day we may be, appear as a handful of maggots and, uh, and so for him, the categorical imperative uh, would be flipped on its head. And this is the idea that you're getting in the uh, contemporary, you know, critical theory of people like Zizek and uh, Elaine Badu and, and, and others who are discussing the possibility of radical evil. And of course, where the discussion gets up and running is really with Hannah Arendt's mm-hmm. reporting on Adolf Eichmann uh, in on his trial in Jerusalem. Eichmann, the guy that's on trial for uh, setting up the transport system in the Nazi death camps. And Eichmann, you know, the, 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 her picture of this is sort of interesting and almost contradictory. In other words, Hannah Arendt never... She uses the language of radical evil. Oh, she wants, I think, very much for Eichmann to be diabolical. A monster. Yeah. It would be yeah. satisfying if she had gone there and yeah. encountered some monster. And what she finds instead is a kind of, uh, as she describes him, a, a man who is incapable of real creative thinking, almost incapable of thought. An idiot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, a, a good bureaucrat. Yeah, he, he's and banal. An idiot. Yeah, uh, and so she coins yeah. the phrase "the banality of evil." Bureaucrats are not as much fun to hang as monsters. Yeah, uh, to demon. But uh, but in a sense, she never reconciled her yeah. two. Her two. No, no. Actually, that phrase doesn't appear until the very end of the book. Uh, a little book that's published on this report. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> It's a cliffhanger. Yeah. That's and a philosophical treatise. And so with the, I mean, it is the Holocaust that has given rise to this discussion in a kind of post, among uh, so-called postmodernists or critical theorists. And it's interesting that they then have come out in favor of the notion that there is such a thing as radical evil. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they're just... Dis- that they're necessarily agreed upon a definition as narrow as that which Kant originally posited. This is what's so interesting, or I think this is wherein lies the question. Can we agree with some of what they're saying about, yeah, people can really be diabolical. Um, Evil can be a real fact that we have to deal with in existence, and it still not really be a problem uh, for belief in God. And for at least since the Reformation, it's been a problem. Even before people were talking about radical evil, it's been a problem. So as you alluded to in your introduction, a standard apologetic move 
is how do we vindicate God from the face of evil, from the problem of evil. And, of course, the terrible thing to do uh, that you get in Protestant... I mean, first of all, just to have the problem. Yeah. As well, we, just to even think that's a problem. That, in some way, God is a part of this reality that entails evil's necessary existence. And so now we have to figure out how does God fit with that. And the, the danger in doing this, and it, it's an obvious danger that works itself out, is... What if you come up with an explanation? You come up with a theory, which is what's happened. That's what apologetics does and says, well, here's, here's the way that uh, God accommodates or uses or, in fact, in which evil is necessary to the good. And so God is, is made complicit in evil. And there is then a projection onto God. I mean, what you get, and this sounds harsh, but unfortunately what you get in doctrines of, you know, various doctrines of atonement, penal substitution, uh, but also then in just broad symbolizations of God, that God is really made out to be this hateful Mm -hmm. figure who is complicit in evil, uh, that skews, I'm afraid, uh, Christianity as we have it. God would kill Jesus in your behalf. God is okay with you being a racist and owning slaves. God's okay with you killing uh, foreigners. God's okay with you X, Y, and Z. And you can even do those things in the name of God if you'd really like. And that's the picture that you get in the, in the modern world. That God... Shall we do evil that grace may abound? Why, certainly. I mean, I'm quoting Paul there. and and, uh, and, Misquoting Paul. (laughs) And Paul would say, no, that's that's anathema. God forbid. But we'd have a form of Christianity. And to be fair, it's not as if people didn't do evil in the name of God prior to modernity. But it wasn't rationalized in the same way. And I think that's the shift. So... uh, what we're describing, perhaps, is a way of understanding reality, not necessarily what's just lived out. Although you could make the argument that with the shift in understanding and thinking of the problem of evil as being a real problem, you do get uh, a systematic violence that's much more dangerous than what existed before. That our complicity, if God is complicit in evil, if God you know, the, the, the whole, I, I'm afraid the doctrine of penal substitution yeah. gives rise to uh, uh, our own complicity yeah. in, in violence, yeah. uh, then it almost becomes a necessity then for us to do yeah. evil. And I just said that because I don't want somebody listening to think, oh, well, what about the Crusades? They're just picking on, you know, 1500 and later. But uh, I think that's true. Uh, and that's John Milbank, somebody else who has engaged this idea. And actually engaged it with some of the people that Paul just mentioned, uh, Zizak and others. And his point is actually that the way we begin to conceive evil as radical evil, or as a necessary, and even a necessary um, aspect of reality, uh, in conjunction with God, gives rise to uh, a type of evil that you get in late modernity, World War One, World War Two, you think that's bad. Well, just what about the sustained evil that we do in the name of capitalism or 
uh, in the name of making a dollar, in other words. So well, maybe he's maybe. pointing all that out in conjunction, I think, with what you're, you're saying. That's a real issue. Let's uh, let's go to John Milbank then, and I think it's his book, Being Reconciled. But he his opening chapter is then a discussion, and he's engaging uh, Augustine's notion of privation theory and uh, Zizek's notion of, and he's using Zizek in particular. Uh, of radical evil, and of course the, they're both going to they're going to work on a book jointly called the Monstrosity of Christ, in which in in a sense this is definitive. I think of the, one of the key discussions, uh, uh, most interesting discussions of this period. Uh, and so let's lay out a bit that in Milbank he's presenting an Augustinian understanding. But what he is saying is that Augustine is in no way giving us a theodicy yes. in privation theory. That rather, the whole point of it is that evil reduces to nothing, and nothing is served. It's, yeah. it's not something that you can comprehend. And so therefore... He and and it is a discussion about the ontology of evil. Now, have I said enough there? What run down a little bit? Yeah, I think so. And John Milbank, well, I don't know if that it's just in the first chapter of his book because he's not doing a theodicy, and so that tells you a little bit more about what the rest of the chapters are about. It may not be ultimately satisfying in the way that he just returns to Augustine and says, uh, or Augustine and says that. Um, you know, evil, we see that it exists, but really it is just a privation, and that has to be the way that it is. <laughs> you know, where he's coming out is, if you're going to be a Christian, then you don't believe evil has real ontological existence, on the same order that God does. I think that's a good point to make. That's the orthodox Christian position and always has been. So it's not as if Thomas Aquinas... Um, is saying something other than that. He may develop that in different ways. I think other modern thinkers are developing this in different ways. And so Milbank, what he is doing in that chapter is setting up the rest of the book to give his solution to evil, which is, again, not a theodicy, but it's to say, well, that uh, the work of Christ is to reconcile us to God. So uh, I think, and then you write, and other people are doing that same kind of move, which ultimately is the way that you, how do you take care of the fact that evil exists for us as humans? You can just jump to saying, well, we're not really going to get into the theoretical about that, and we're going to say that Christ overcomes it. And I think that is ultimately the answer, and Milbank does that quite well. Let's go down a path, though, in which we could, could posit an understanding of privation theory that is highly problematic, and this is where many people come in. And that is that if we, if evil is described as having no essence or ground, but it is a kind of incapacity, uh, and that ultimately it's an incapacity of the will, that the way that uh, they're describing Augustine's picture is that evil is in fact not a positive willing of something, but an incapacity of willing, an incapacity to attain the good. Have I described this correctly? Yeah, I, I would say more particularly what Augustine is describing, what Milbank is saying, is 
the particular incapacity of the will is for the will to choose its own end. And so if the will, and I mean, we, we have to be careful about this discussion because they, what they're not imagining is what I think some people uh, mean by that is that, well, we're, we're just not able to even do anything that's good. That's sort of a reformed uh, reading. And this is going to be the conclusion to all this, I think, has to do with this. Is that's a reformed reading of Augustine. And, uh, no, what he means by the will cannot choose its end is that we simply do not ever live our lives as they are directed towards our end, ultimately, God. So let's go to the bad discussion, and maybe the wrong discussion. Yeah, so where it comes from, I think, is the shift to thinking about God as only the first efficient cause of the universe, which they're getting this. I mean, it's not original to Thomas Aquinas, but they're getting this from Aquinas, though that's not the way he thinks about efficient causality. Aquinas is going to talk about several forms of causality, and they're just using Aristotle's categories at this point. They're helpful at describing the way things work. There's a formal cause, the form that something takes. There's a material cause, what something's made of. There is the efficient cause, where does something come from? But that particularly is describing motion. Uh, so it would be the idea of what can the will do or what can a human being do. Uh, but then there's a final cause, and the final cause is what is something supposed to end up as? And for Aquinas, because he's more Christian than Aristotelian, he simply takes the language, the philosophical language of the day and applies it to a doctrine of theosis, saying God has created us for a purpose, and that purpose is fulfilled in becoming like God, or, I mean, to put more strongly, becoming God uh, in his attributes, not his essence. And so Aquinas is using efficient cause and final cause together to describe that relationship in greater detail. What happens just in the next century after his death is people will focus primarily on efficient causality, and they will fold the rests of those kinds of cause into efficient causality, so it begins to be the only type of causality that is talked about. And this is apparent to us today because when we talk about cause, we always mean cause and effect. Uh, we don't even use the word in any other way. What that implies, though, if you're going to talk about God in terms of efficient causality, and if you stop meaning that that is just a metaphor, and is going to actually break down very quickly because uh, to say God is the first efficient cause of the universe or of created things would be a better way of saying it, is implying that God is actually a part of the same order that the universe or created beings are. And Thomas Aquinas would have never affirmed that because he follows classical uh, Christian orthodoxy. So would Augustine. They, when they think of God, God is qualitatively of a different order than creation. So, And Kierkegaard, so other thinkers get this. So Kierkegaard won't even say that God exists because what he means by that is God is not something that is of the order of existence in the way that we are. So there's this clear divide, but that begins to be lost. Not that the people following Thomas Aquinas are out-and-out out heretics thinking that God is of the created order, but what they've confused is the way God stands uh, to creation, the relationships there between creation and God, and God and creation, and they begin to speak in terms of sovereignty and power. These become issues uh, for political reasons during the 14th century. And uh, once you're talking about efficient causality and you're not implying a, a metaphor, 
and you're not realizing that God is really of a different order. And so words like power, sovereignty, um, um, don't exactly mean the same thing when applied to God and who God is in himself and who God is in relation to us. That those metaphors get taken to such an extent that you begin to see where the problem comes from. Well, if God is all-powerful, and what we mean by all-powerful is the same thing, uh, the same terminology as human power. I have the power to um, move a book from one table to the next. If I have the power to do it and I set my will to it, it happens. Once you apply that to God, you have a perverse God because there's evil, and why would God allow that? The efficient causality, that is, that all that is caused, all that happens is caused by God. Is caused by God. And all of this then has folded in into a singular understanding of the way that power and sovereignty is exercised by God, so that the way in which you're going to rescue yourself from radical evil, or in an, a misreading of an Augustinian, or, or falls into a misreading, yeah. is to say that you cannot will evil. Uh, that uh, that is an impossibility. But wait a minute. Yeah, that's not... <laughs> we've allowed bad categories or bad premises to control the conversation. And of course, what you would... Anybody that has encountered an evil person, uh, that we do not feel an incapacity or a weakness in mm-hmm. the presence of truly evil people or even yeah. slightly mean and bad people, uh, what we feel is a real capacity to hurt us. Yeah. Uh, that is that evil can reach out and grab you by the throat and throttle you. That's right. And uh, so that there is a kind of pitiful understanding of the, the, the potency of evil in the world so that ironically evil becomes a kind of weakness that can be absorbed uh, by God's goodness that he can he's big enough that and we get a God who is uh, in fact responsible for evil which in all honesty somebody like Thomas Aquinas would in as much as he would say well you can't say that God does or is evil you also can't say that God is or does good in the same structure, because what you—I mean—you're implying the same type of efficient causality. And so, Aquinas' starting point is God is goodness, and that's qualitatively of a different order. And we only understand that in part after coming to God as Christians and practicing Christians. We only through practice for somebody like Thomas Aquinas would you even in contemplation would you even begin to approach. Uh, a limited understanding of the goodness of God. And through theosis, through contemplation and prayer, you might even become God's goodness, but you still haven't understood the essence of God as goodness. You've understood the attribute that you could feel. And that seems, meta, you know, that's hard to grasp, abstract and metaphysical, but this is the beauty of the Hebrew scriptures that you brought up already. They understood the use of metaphor so that uh, people get into this conversation and it, it touches upon other issues. And they, once you say something like, well, God doesn't do evil or do goodness in that sense, do good in that sense, they would say, well, but the Bible is filled with um, 
you know, illustrations of God changing his mind and doing things like that. So of course he does. And they'll say that's, that's, the Bible says that more than anything else. I think we can carefully point out to these people, actually, more than that, the Bible attributes physical human attributes to God, and we certainly don't take those. I mean, nobody thinks God has a nose uh, or, or something like that. And so we begin to realize the power of a metaphor so that the Hebrew scriptures can have God doing both the way we translate it, evil, um, or we can translate things as good. But the Hebrews fundamentally realized God was of a different order. Mm-hmm. And they're reminded of this, his holiness and the way they can't approach him. Their whole system of worship was centered around this distinction between the approachability of God. And what's key in that discussion, I think, is that we do have a true relation to God. Without Christ, it's not a right relation. Mm-hmm. So there's no possibility for us to become God's goodness or to do good in this way or to even really be able to have this conversation in this type of detail. Well, apart from Christ, we still have a relation to God. He's created us. Uh, we live in a world that is sustained by him, but it's a misrelation. That misrelation sounds like something, oh, well, you know, that seems kind of flippant or even banal, but it's that misrelation is so fundamental to human existence, or the relation itself is so fundamental to human existence that the misrelation of that or the misdirection of that relation uh, brings about evil, moral evil, as an actually existing thing among other existing things. Still and, qualitatively of a different order than God's And existence. this is the entry point. In other words, if we go back to Milbank's positing of this absolute difference, I think there is a way to negotiate between Milbank's privation theory and Zizek's notion of radical evil. And the the first of all, in the way that you've described it, that uh, you can posit a world and that there be an actually existing world in in which uh, darkness and evil and and these things in and through I mean this is just mm-hmm. the, the gospel of John right. that we have a cosmos of darkness. Uh, he doesn't mean that that's God's good created world. He means that's the world constituted by human beings. That's really all that Zizek and company mean, except for that for them, that's the only kind of worlds there are. That it is, in other words, when they're talking about a radical evil, when you get into uh, the details of Lacanian psychoanalysis or what you know, Zizek is describing as the dynamic of human personality and the death drive, uh, that ultimately, and this is his interest in both Schelling and Hegel, you know, what Schelling's picture of the beginning of the universe is really a, a, a kind of problem that arises in the mind of God, that he has God then coming outside of himself, that getting outside of his own drives, because uh, the the idea is to conceive why he would do that. Uh, what they're describing ultimately is why is there even such a thing as human consciousness and human personality? As a materialist, atheistic materialist, uh, they're giving us an explanation for you know the ego, the the superego, the id, or 
uh, Zizek is going to appeal to the Apostle Paul that, you know, the ego is the image in Paul, the I, actually. Uh, the superego is the law. And the body of death, you know, is... Well, the, the point is that I think that Zizek has described something perfectly true, something that as Christians we would not want to deny, and that is that, oh no, as human beings we can will evil and we can constitute a world that is in fact grounded in that evil, except the prime characteristic of it is that it's a falsehood, it's a lie, but it's an actually existing lie that can constitute uh, both human personality and human systems. Now that that may, uh, I, I think that you almost need to go this direction. In other words, I would say that if we do not, you know, what we've got here is a very strong understanding of evil. But I think we need to linger there for a minute to recognize you're not going to explain this there is no theodicy, there is no, but what we have, in other words, what God is doing in Christ is overcoming this world, defeating this world. So when we talk about, you know, the, and this is Wright's point about, you know, the, the difference between usual doctrines of atonement, you know, you go study doctrines of atonement and nobody ever talks about evil, and then you go do apologetics and suddenly they're talking about apologetics. Are talking about evil and apologetics? Yes, yeah. yes, I, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the imagine imagining. In other words, if you can solve the problem of evil in your apologetics class, you don't need to introduce it into your theology class. Yeah. Well, no, actually, we we've got a, a more serious problem. It turns out than we thought. We do not have a theory or explanation of that order, but what we have instead is the cross of Christ overcoming and defeating evil, sin, and death. I think that that, in, 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 in a way, it's a long way around to returning to a Hebraic universe. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... I think that the point you make with Zizek is really good because it's taking the issue of human evil very seriously. But I don't think that's altogether any different in the end than what is already a part of a privation theory rightly understood. Because, I mean, that's what the claim... The claim isn't that you're not willing evil. The claim is that what evil is is the incapacity of the will to achieve a good end. Yeah, and, that, and yeah. so the, this was, uh, from the beginning, yeah. a misunderstood yes. reading yeah. of uh, yeah. Augustine. Uh, I think that even as uh, is straightened out as early as, you know, even Karl Barth gives us an alternative reading to that in his, I'm not sure if it's around his discussion of nothingness, but uh, Barth actually is engaging, or his brother is a philosopher. He's quite aware of, of what uh, Heidegger is doing, you know, and, and so he gives us a fa fairly sophisticated engagement with that early on in the uh, 20th century. Uh, the, the point of all of this is uh, that we have a, an understanding of God that should have never been tainted That's right. with, let's say, what it has been tainted. Well, actually, I would say, the way I would put it is that all of the, the, 
the advent of the problem of evil is the taint of our understanding of God. That is that is the misunderstanding of who God is. Because this arises from a shift from conceiving God uh, as he's biblically conceived in relation to his love and his wisdom and who he is in and of himself, the Trinity revealed to us, to a vision of God that um, in many ways just wants to talk about God the Father and talk about his authority, his sovereignty, and his power. Uh, Which actually aren't Trinitarian relations. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's not. That's not who God is in him, of Himself. That's how we understand God as created beings. And so, when you reduce God to issues of power, unfortunately, what you get is a Christianity that has also been stripped down of uh, the full participation. Then yeah. uh, you know you get your soul saved, uh, but it really doesn't touch upon the fullness yeah. of who we are yeah. either. It's not, not just that we lose God in this. Unfortunately, I think that we we lose ourselves. Well, it becomes preoccupied with the problem of evil and the problem with sin, and the and then justice is reduced to merely overcoming guilt. And so, I I mean, really, that's why I think you have atheists like Zizek that are dealing with this. They're they're dealing with the issues created by a bad theology. You know, <coughs> in all of this, and and. Uh, um, you know, I'm a little hesitant to go here, but I think we almost need to go here. Because this discussion pertains to where we find ourselves uh, on the national political mm -hmm. scene, and I think very commonly locally, that we have evangelical Christians advocating for, I think, you know, they've, they've uh, supported a president who would clearly suppress certain groups of people, oppress certain groups of people, who I think is a, is uh, advocating issue, uh, uh, a kind of white supremacy. Uh, to, to, to put it succinctly, we have a, a, a man in office who is without moral compass, who would do evil in... Uh, the, with the prospect that good might abound. And evangelical Christians then are uh, have, have come out in support of this. I think that evangelical Christian, Christianity, in as much as it can align itself with what is blatantly racist, uh, blatantly white supremacist, uh, is also blatantly not Christian. Yeah, I mean, definitely so. Uh, and I think it stems, and this is Milbank's point as well, that he makes very well. The preoccupation with the problem of evil has led to a Christianity that in some way wants to allow for evil. And uh, I think that's, we're reaping the, the fruit of that type of non-Christianity or anti-Christianity. And the danger is, I mean, uh, bad enough that our nation may <laughs> find itself in a nuclear war, I don't know. I mean, the danger is people are being hurt. People are being hurt, and they're being hurt at a you know uh, at all sorts of levels. But when you encounter this, 
uh, in people is people, Christians will hurt you. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had people explain to me that they needed to do bad things to me and my family, uh, you know, heads of institutions, uh, that it was a necessary part of building the kingdom. And of course, once evil becomes a necessary part, they've got a theology that's already incorporated that. Now, I don't know what you know where the chicken and the egg are here in this. Do we do you know? Do we uh, create the theological systems that will accommodate our evil, or in fact, are we uh, in some way evil because we've bought into a, a, a skewed understanding of who? For a bit of both. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a little bit of both. But the thing is that, uh, and, and of course, we all need to look at our own lives and recognize that our own willingness to be complicit in violence, our own willingness to in any way engage in these things, it, it really needs to be purged. Uh, it needs to be gotten rid of. Uh, there is no place for evil in the kingdom of God. God does not use evil. It's not a necessity. And maybe this is the, you know, kind of the, the end of this discussion, is that, in, in fact, when we talk about uh, the cross of Christ, though it is engaged in defeating evil, that's not all that it does. Yeah, yeah I would, so back to Thomas's formulation of all of this. I think we, too, readily read him with our flawed categories so he says god wills to permit evil and we read that as saying god allows evil that's not what thomas aquinas is actually saying he's saying god wills to give us a permission to exercise a freedom that would even misrelate us to him and god is in no way using the evil that comes out of that for his own ends or purposes uh, Aquinas has no trouble quoting James. <laughs> God does not, you know, God does not tempt or cannot be tempted, that sort of thing. But he does say this willed permission is a good. And what what does he mean by that? Well, it's in, Lonergan brings this up, in, and this is where we get to the cross of Christ, brings this up in a conversation about grace and whether grace as actual grace, that grace given to us is uh, operative or cooperative. That is, does God operate on us so that that grace is present in our lives? And or, and or, it's and for him, is that grace cooperative to whereas God cooperates with our own human will and uh, the capacities that God has given us to achieve the end that is God himself? And then the big question is, do we have freedom? And so it's easier to see, yes, there's freedom as far as God's cooperating with us because we have the freedom to cooperate with God. But what about in the sense that God is operating on us? Do we have freedom in this sense? And Lonergan, I think, is arguing that we have a permission, the permission that God wills for us is the space for us to have true freedom in relationship to God's operative grace. And the way he can, the classical conception of freedom is not you have the freedom to choose right or you have the freedom to choose wrong because we can never say that God was free. So it's not a freedom from all contingents, as the modern definition often goes. Uh, it's a freedom that we have as we are ordered rightly 
uh, towards God. It's the freedom to be who we are created to be, or it's the freedom to be who we truly are. And um, the way he eventually will formulate this is that there is no end for human freedom to be able to choose uh, to choose God for one, to choose to be who we are naturally as created by God, and for God to work operatively on our will um, from a standpoint of grace. And what's what's implicit in all of this is that all classical theologians would say, we are related to God, but God is not related to us. However, there is a relation from God to us that is real, and it's the relation of grace. So that God has both created us, and that's by his grace, and it's not. Uh, God didn't create us out of necessity, Aquinas says. This all fits together with his formulation of this. But God creates us out of his love and out of his wisdom. Notice power isn't present in that relationship. So a picture of creation, then, that allows for our own uh, freedom, and we end up... uh, misusing freedom where we don't use freedom and we end up with evil salvation does take care of that in other words it fixes us in a sense that saves us from something sin death and evil but that's not the whole picture because god's the impetus of god's creation being a free choice of love and wisdom is actually aimed at something much better than simply the absence of evil which would as we've defined it be just an absence of an absence it's directed towards a true relationship and a true participation in human beings and the being of God, so that that participation looks like us becoming the love and the wisdom of God. Uh, you could think of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. These become who we are, and then we even have God's grace present to us that we can cooperate with those virtues to uh, engage in theosis or deification um, Sanctification is a, a word that doesn't scare people as much, but it's sort of it is the same process if you have this connected directly to justification. Now, once you've said all that, I think you can set these two theologies side by side and see where one is really different than the other, especially that word justification. And people like N.T. Wright are getting this, and I think Milbank's getting this. Uh, in the nominalistic, voluntaristic picture of justification that arises with the same need to talk about the problem of evil, justification is merely uh, an idea or a theoretical uh, reality in the mind of God, and you remain both a sinner and uh, you're justified just because God says you are, or thinks you are, rather, but it's, there's nothing real that happens to you, versus a theology that says, well, um, sin, death, and evil have been taken care of, And that doesn't just leave you as a sinner because they've been taken care of in the mind of God. No, this negative thing that is your misrelation to God has truly been taken care of. You've been given a right relationship to God. And now the work of Christianity or the work of salvation, what salvation actually entails is becoming like God, becoming the love and the wisdom uh, of God. So we pass from... Uh, a Christianity focused on things like an imputed righteousness, a theory—I mean, uh, the, a kind of law court imagery that is, in in a sense, exhaustive—to uh, a a and, and that it, it, uh, leaves out so much of uh, human lived reality to an understanding of Christianity that is a full participation ethically and on a, 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 a daily level.
lived reality that is a participation in Trinity and in salvation on an ongoing basis. And it begins then with our, our understanding of the doctrine. Yeah. All right, John, it's been good. Thanks a lot.